Today, I'm going to be doing John 11 and the raising of Lazarus after a four-day wait. And my goal today is to see Jesus as one who understands human fragility and is truly present with us when we suffer. One who understands human fragility and is truly present with us when we suffer. In the typical message you might hear on this chapter, it's about Jesus is powerful enough to do the ultimate miracle to raise the dead. He is must be God, which is true. That is absolutely true. And that is part of the message. But that could have been told in just a few verses. If you have your handout here, just return it to the second side. Section six tells that story. But why the long talks with the disciples, with Martha and with Mary? Why all the emotional stuff? What is going on? So I'm going to do what I don't normally do in a sermon, is give you the punchline at the beginning. And then I'll go on and show how I think this works. So this is what I think the punchline of the message is. I'm going to call it living in the gap. The gap is between now and when all our prayers are answered. It's between the promise and the deliverance. It's between Jesus being told Lazarus was dying and him actually being raised. It's all about the time gap between bringing our problems to Jesus and him bringing victory. In this gap, there is suffering, there's pain, and there's confusion. And you may have experienced that in your life. Does Jesus tell us to live in denial? Because everything is going to turn out fine. So why are you upset? Just put a smile on, paint a smile on your face because everything is good. Does Jesus do that? Is that how this works? No, he walks with us and weeps with us and tenderly builds our trust. He walks with us and weeps with us. Jesus is a good shepherd to Martha and Mary, to his disciples, to Lazarus, and to all who recognize his voice. And that last sentence there is kind of almost like a title for this message, because last week we had Jesus as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. This week is him being a good shepherd in seven phases that we get Seven conversations that we get that you see there on your handout. And so my overview is an introduction, which I've just been giving. Seven conversations and how Jesus speaks to us. Just briefly to recap where we're up to in the Gospel of John. We can see John's Gospel in two halves. There's The first half, which is Jesus' public ministry, chapters 1 to 12, where he does lots of miracles and there are seven recorded, which John calls the seven signs. And then the second half is Jesus' private time with his disciples and his death and resurrection. So this first half, book of signs, starts with a prologue in chapter 1, ends down with an epilogue in chapter 12. And then there's a a very symmetrical pattern of miracles and uh with right in the middle there, the the really public messages that Jesus does at the feast. 
Uh, right at the beginning, the very first miracle that Jesus does is the turning the water into wine. And this is the very last one that John records. And it's quite interesting to see there are some similarities. The faith of Jesus' mother telling the servants to obey Jesus. And the faith of Martha allowing them to open the tomb. Mary, Jesus' mother, and Martha are like the parallels in this two, these first and last signs in the book. Two women whose faith was linked to the miracles that happened. So in the, pa- in the handout that I've, I've given you all, there is a structure there, and you can see in some sections it's quite detailed. Um, I don't think it's actually quite the tight poetic structure that we've seen in some of the other parts, but nevertheless it's there to carry forward the, the process of what's happening, to char- carry forward the story. And I'm going to be going through it now. So now we're going to look at seven conversations. And so the first one is on the first side of your sheet, sheet number one. I've called this the delay. So I'm going to read this and we can, um, we can go through this together. Um, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village where Mary and her sister Martha lived. Now it was Mary who anointed the Lord with perfumed oil and wiped his feet dry with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now what's interesting is we haven't actually got to that story yet. That comes in the next chapter. So this means John assumes that you've read this more than once. This, you're not going to just read John once. You're going to read it lots of times. He's giving you a kind of a forward reference here. Uh, so the sisters sent a message to Jesus. Lord, look, the one you love is sick. The one you love is sick. And that um, that could be almost um, your dearest friend is sick. The word that's used there is not just love. It's love which is like a friend love. And um, uh, it's... Um, The question comes up, does Jesus have favorites? Like, does he love some people more than others? Well, I want to say that as a human being, he was a natural human who actually had people who on in a human level, while he was on earth, appealed to him more. I don't think Jesus has favorites in terms of being unfair, but during his time on earth, there were people who he particularly loved. And this was somebody who was a particular friend to Jesus. Um, and uh, then we read... Uh, when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness will not lead to death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified as a result of it. Now, this is a, a very interesting statement, and we may not catch the full meaning unless we read the whole of John. But when Jesus says he's going to be glorified, do you know what he's referring to? He's got a very specific meaning for that. Yeah? It means the cross. That's right. So let me just show you when that... uh, um, John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So what does this mean? What this means, quite simply, is that Jesus knows that healing Lazarus, raising Lazarus from the dead is going to trigger his own death. 
because it's going to be such a public thing. It's going to, and it does. This is what, this is like the thing that causes them to seriously start planning how to kill him. And so when this comes down to it, the question really here is, does he love Lazarus enough to die for him? Because this is it. We saw last week, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Here it comes down to it. If he is going to raise Lazarus, it's going to kill him. It's going to lead to his own death. And so this is the choice. And it's very clear here. Uh, Jesus says, this is the sickness that's going to result in me being glorified, i.e. going to the cross. And then it says, verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And you can see these are bracketing this central statement in verse 3 there and in verse 5. It's Jesus' love that is driving him here. It's the love of the shepherd. It's a love that really, these are his dearest friends. And this is why he's going to give his love for them. And on your sheet, I've put in purple and underlined the emotions that are there in the passage. And this is how it kicks off. What Jesus is doing now is driven by this deep love that he has. And then we have the last verse in this first conversation. So when you heard that he was sick, he remained in the place where he was for two more days. And we actually, uh, you can see verse 1 is echoed in that certain man Lazarus was sick. And then we have sick, he was sick in verse 6, two more days. And then if we look down at the bottom of the page, near the bottom, verse 17, he found Lazarus had been in the tomb four days already. So those are the kind of bracketing points that divide up this passage. So that's the first part of the story, first conversation. And we know from where Jesus was that it was about two days journey for him to get there. So um, when he stayed there for two days, then that meant that it would take another two days and Lazarus would have been dead for four days by the time he got there. So uh, let me just go back to this verse. The one Jesus loves is sick, but healing him will cost the shepherd's own life. Jesus is a good shepherd to Lazarus. So that, that, I think, is what the first conversation is about. It's a costly choice that Jesus has to make. But now we turn to a conversation with the disciples, which is curious, and it, you think, why is this in there? And it's quite a long conversation. Well, let's read it and see why this conversation is in here. Uh, verse 7. Then, after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples replied, Rabbi, the Jewish leaders were just now trying to stone you to death. Are you going there again? And they're quite right. They pointed out something that's absolutely true. This will be the death of him. Um, And uh, then Jesus replies, Are there not 12 hours in a day? Whoever walks in the daytime does not stumble because they see the light of this world. But whoever walks at night stumbles because the light is not in them. These things he said. Uh, This might sound a little confusing. What is this about? It's actually very similar to what Jesus said at the beginning of the gospel when he was with the woman of Samaria and the disciples said, you know, what are you doing? Uh, And Jesus really is saying, 
There's two ways of living. You can live in confusion or you can live in a way that's planned out according to God's will. If you're walking in the light, you're walking into God's plan. And you know what? If you're in God's plan, you're never in danger. Some bad things might happen to you, but ultimately you are never in danger if you are in God's will. This is what he's saying. The safest place to be is where God wants you to be. Bad things might happen, but how can they ultimately be bad if you're where God wants you to be? So this, he says, is actually the question. It's the question is, as I'm, am I walking in the light or in the darkness? Not, is it going to cause me problems if I go there? Then we get this curious conversation right in the middle of this section. After this, he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to awaken him. Then the disciples replied, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Uh, And I think this is the example here of them walking in darkness, like they don't get it. And Jesus has been talking about death, but they thought he was talking about the rest of sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and I'm glad for your sake that I was not there. I am glad. So this is more emotion. I'm glad for your sake I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. What's going on there? Jesus knows that soon he's going to die. And these disciples are going to be like sheep without a shepherd. The shepherd's dead. What's it going to be like for them? They need their faith strengthening. They need to see something that is so powerful for them, it's going to keep them through that doubt. And so Jesus knows that if they see him raise somebody from the dead, it's going to really build them up in their faith. And so he says, I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there, because now you're going to see something bigger. If I was there and I just healed his sickness, that would have been good. But for your sake, so that you may believe. So you see Jesus being a good shepherd to his disciples. He cares for them because he knows this is going to be a trial and he builds them up in their faith. And God might do the same thing for you sometime. You know, you're thinking, why is God not answering my prayer right away now? And he's actually giving you a little bit of stress here because he, in fact, he knows you need your faith strengthening. And he's being the good shepherd. He's, he's ministering to your heart at this point. And so because it's of Jesus' love for them, he's doing this. He is delaying this. Um, then we have, uh, so matching Jesus' statement um, at the beginning when Jesus says in verse um, 8, um, sorry, the, the, the disciples say, are you going there again? Now uh, the disciples, in fact one of them, Thomas, says, let us go too that we may die with him. Now I think what, so Thomas has a bit of a bad rap in the scripture, you know, doubting Thomas. Actually, if you read what happened, Thomas is the first one to declare Jesus is God. So even though Thomas doubts, he comes about with flying colors at the end of this. I see Thomas looking at me now. Uh, so so uh, he comes through with flying colors. So I don't think that we have the right picture of Thomas. And I think here, actually, he's saying, yeah, I actually, I'm willing to die. If that's what, if you've got, if you're sure what you're doing, Jesus, I'm actually willing to die. I'm going to trust you here. I'm going to go with you. So what you have then is a conversation with his disciples where he's being a shepherd. He's preparing them for what's going to happen and he's walking them through the, the issues here. 
So I'm going to say the disciples need a strong faith to survive Jesus' death. It makes the shepherd glad to give it. Now we come to Jesus arriving at the the the, the, uh, the town, and first of all, he's outside the town. Martha, he's he's coming, comes out to meet him, and this is what we saw earlier in the video. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. I think the crowds were much larger, by the way, than we saw in that video, um, because it's so close. Um, it's about two and a half kilometers from Jerusalem, so very close. Um, and so many of the Jewish people of the region had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Uh, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Martha, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been there, my brother would not have died. Now, I don't think she's complaining there. I think she's just stating um, something out of her grief. But, but then she goes on. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will grant you. Now, we're going to see here Jesus meeting Martha exactly where she is. And Martha's problem is she cannot understand what's been happening. Have you been like that in your your Christian life ever, and you think, what is God doing? Like, this doesn't make sense. Why did God lead me in that direction? And then this seems to be, I, I don't know what God is doing. And Martha is in confusion about, about Jesus and about what's happening. And Jesus, the good shepherd, is taking some time with her just to lead her at this point. She says, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will grant you. So it's not that I doubt Jesus, I just don't get it. Jesus replied, your brother will come back to life again. So there is some sense, Martha, there is something happening. But he's he's actually not just giving her the answer to start with, he's actually helping her develop her faith. He's helping her grow her faith. Verse 24, Martha says, I know that he will come back to life again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And the one who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So actually, let's just think of what he's saying. That if you die, through Jesus you can have resurrection. But if you live... In some ways, you never die. In some ways, if you're a Christian, you will never die. Your body might not might die, but actually there's no time where you're not conscious because you will be with the Lord immediately. And that death will just be a transition. So if you're in Jesus, actually, there's no such thing anymore as death, uh, a transitory thing with your body and then later on getting a new body, but death is dealt with. He says, do you believe this? He's challenging her. He's trying to, to minister to this poor broken sheep in her confusion. And he's gently leading her along a path. And she replies, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who comes into the world. And this is a climax of a confession of Jesus that she says it all. She says, this is the confession i know who you are and he's led her to that point of of such a strong statement of faith by bringing her along this pathway 
So this beautiful discussion we have between Jesus and Martha, I'm going to, I'm going to say is about the gentleness of Jesus. She's horribly confused. The shepherd gently led her to beautiful clarity and faith. He gently gives her an understanding of what's happening and reassures her. He doesn't, she doesn't yet know it's, a, it's going to happen right now. Because that's going to come late. You can tell later. She doesn't yet know. He, but she does know that Jesus has actually solved the problem that she's worried about. And so he's been a good shepherd to her at this point. So now we come to Mary. And we come to this fourth conversation. When she'd said this, Martha went and called her sister Mary, saying privately, the teacher is here and is asking for you. So when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still in the place where Martha had come out to meet him. Then the people who were with Mary in the house consoling her got... uh, saw her get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought she was going to the tomb to weep there. So what I think is happening with Mary and Martha, I think Mary is um, in a more of an emotional place at this point. Martha's struggle is what is going on here? Why didn't Jesus come? Like, he loves us. Why didn't he come? This is Martha's struggle. Mary is just lost in her grief. And that's why she's not even together enough to go out when Jesus arrives, she's just there crying and Martha stirs her up and gently says, teacher's here, you should go out and see him. And so when, Ma- when Mary goes out to Jesus, Jesus meets her in a different place. Jesus doesn't sort set out trying to meet her problems, her confusion about what is happening, but really with her heart, her grief in her heart. We start, Mary says the same thing as Martha to start with. Mary came to this place where Jesus was and saw him. She fell at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you'd been there, my brother would not have died. But what what Jesus does, as we'll see in just a minute, Jesus' response is not to explain the details of why he wasn't there. That's what Martha needed. What Mary needs is Jesus just to be with her in her grief. Just to be with her in her grief. And so I'm going to say then that Mary was overwhelmed by her emotions and Jesus was with her in her grief. Mary was overwhelmed by her emotions and Jesus was with her in her grief. Now, um, it's very interesting when you look at different responses to this passage and different um, different um, religions. And we're going to look at this section five now and see how this portrays Jesus. When Jesus saw her weeping, the people and the people who'd come with her weeping. He was intensely moved in spirit and greatly distressed. Now, people have, have, have argued for 2,000 years what's going on here. I think it's very simple. Jesus was human. His dearest friends were wailing their hearts out. If you're human and your dear friends are wailing your hearts out, then you cry with them. 
I don't think there's anything more complicated going on. I think Jesus is weeping. Even though, and this is really the critical point of this message today, even though he knew that there was a message that the pain was going to stop very shortly because he was going to raise Lazarus, he doesn't say to them, stop crying, everything's going to be all right. He doesn't do that. He cries with them. You know, often when people are, are upset, we try and shut them up and say, oh, it's okay, don't worry, don't make a fuss. You know, everything will turn out all right. He doesn't say that. He is with them in their suffering. And this is really important for us because when we have things go wrong, when we have people who die, we don't have Jesus with us right now to raise them from the dead immediately. Sometimes things take a lot longer. And we need to know that Jesus is with us and he's weeping with us. We're told to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And this is what Jesus is doing. He was intensely moved in spirit and greatly distressed. He asked, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. Jesus broke into tears. The, the, often you'll see Jesus wept is the translation. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. I translated it, Jesus broke into tears, because actually, technically, that's more correct, because it's actually a thing that happened. It's a particular tense in Greek called the aorist, which means an event happened. He actually started crying. Jesus started crying, or the way we would say, he he broke into tears, or he burst into tears. And at that point, it was so much. Thus, the people who come to mourn said, look how much he loved him. Well, actually, they were they were nearly right, but it was actually how how much he loved the people, his his sister, their sisters, Mary and Martha, and he was with them in their grief. But some of them said, "This is the man who caused the blind man to see. Couldn't he have done something to keep Lazarus from dying?" Jesus, intensely moved in himself again, came to the tomb. So you have here an extraordinary set of verses where you get Jesus' strongest emotions of empathy that we see in the scriptures. And this is, uh, I'm going to say, is remarkable. And this is something that defines Christianity over against all other religions. And I'm just going to take Buddhism as an example here. And I've got some quotes here from Buddhist writers. Crying is a reaction to suffering, and the goal of Buddhist practice is to be free from suffering. So you may cry during your practice, and it's normal for a worldling to cry, but a fully enlightened one will not cry because he's beyond suffering. That's why you may see a statue of Buddha smiling, but never one crying. So, all emotions are as a result of our attachments or desires or cravings. This is a fundamentally... Is fundamentally what falls under the term sufferings of life in this samsaric human condition. What allows emotions to rise is disappointment in some form of that which we cling to or desire. The entire practice of Buddhism was searched for and developed in the search to end this kind of phenomena. To detach our human mind from this was the accomplishment of Shakyamuni. This is Buddhism. It's about denial. It's about putting yourself in a place where you just detach from the suffering of life. Jesus is the opposite to that. Jesus is not about denial. It's not about putting a brave face on it. It's fully facing 
the realities of pain, fully facing them and fully dealing with them. This is so important because sometimes even Christians can think, oh, you know, I'm a Christian, I must put a brave face on it. This is not what the message of the passage is. I'm a Christian. I have a God who weeps with me. Isn't that amazing? We have a God who weeps with us. What could be more different to the religions of this world? I've just picked Buddhism. We could pick Islam as well for examples of this kind of thing. One last quote. From craving spring grief, from craving spring fear, for one who is wholly free from craving, there is no grief, whence then fear. So no grief, you deny it. So I'm going to say, to sum up this section five, humans are fragile in a broken world. We are fragile. The shepherd is moved by our pain, even though he will end it. Following Jesus is about final victory, but not about living in a state of denial in the meantime. Do you get that? Victory is final, but we don't live now in a state of of denial because it's a fragile world. It's a broken world. And, but we have a shepherd who is there, who's present with us in this. So next we come to the climax of the story, which is conversation six. And conversation six is we have, uh, we have, um, beginning with Jesus giving a command. And then a response to the command, he gives another command, a response, and then a final command. So the first command is lift up the stone, and then 41, this is in red, 41, they lifted up the stone. 43, he shouted in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 44, the one who died came out, and the end of 44, Jesus said to him, unwrap and let him go. And what you have in between those commands is the responses of the people. And how they respond to him. And, uh, so this is, this is just beautifully woven together. By the way, you may have noticed I always have lots of color on these handouts that I give to you. I want to show you, um, what, what it looks like when I study the scripture. So I actually printed out, and this is my original first draft, all highlighted with colors and so on. And sometimes I, you know, I decide that this doesn't work and I do another printout and, uh, and I do another set of colors on it. And then finally I, I produce the one here for you. But, but for me, I, I mark things that are similar, that resonate. And so I highlighted the three commands of Jesus and I thought, oh, you know what? The three commands are interspersed with three, with, with, two like responses of faith in between those and um, so you get command response command response command so that's interesting and then you can see what's going on in the passage so what we see then is in this conversation um, we have uh, Jesus says lift up a stone um, the sister of the deceased Martha replied, Lord, by this time the body will have a bad smell because he's been buried four days. So I don't think it's a lack of faith. I don't think she realizes yet that it's about to happen. Uh, uh, but, but then she must have told them that it was okay to, to uh, um, release the stone. Uh, Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So she must have believed at that point. They lifted the stone. And so this faith then uh, leads to a response. 
And then we have, they lifted up the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes. Now I've, you may, usually in the translation it says they took the stone away, but I've translated it literally here. The word there in the original Greek is lifted up and it resonates with the next thing Jesus lifted up his eyes. It's the same word, lift up the stone and lift up his eyes. Now I think that's done as a sort of resonance that one kind of leads to the other. Uh, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have listened to me. I knew that you always listened to me, but I said this for the sake of the crowd standing around here, that they may believe that you sent me. So he's being a shepherd again. He's guiding these sheep and explaining to them what's happening by the way he prays. When he said this, he shouted in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Somebody's made the comment, it's a good job he named Lazarus, because if he just said, come forth, all the graves would have opened and everybody would have come forth. So he limits it to Lazarus here. Uh, the one who died came out, his feet and hand tied with strips of cloth and a cloth wrapped around his face. So they could probably just kind of shuffle or hop along. Uh, Jesus uh Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. And then that's like some compassion for Lazarus and caring for him. So I want to say that um, um, raising Lazarus from the dead here was what cost Jesus his own life. And um, Jesus is doing this for Lazarus. He's being the good shepherd for Lazarus. And so he is uh, being the shepherd who gives, lives down, who lays down his life for the sheep. It's done in a way that involves people with the goal of building them up. So he doesn't just do it. He could have come straight into the scene and raised Lazarus, but he does it with the people who are present. And he leads them on a pathway of faith. So all the time he's caring as a shepherd for the people who are there. And... Um, it's the same with us. You know, if Jesus immediately answered every prayer that we had, then there would be no development here. But he is mindful of this gap between the promise and the fulfillment and leading us to helping us to grow during that time. So the last part that we have, the false shepherds. The false shepherds who are self-serving and reject the voice of the shepherd. And so... Let's have a look at these. Many of the people who'd come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and reported to them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and Pharisees called the council together and said, what are we doing? For this person is performing many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on this way, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away our temple and our nation. In other words, we are like we we are the the religious leaders in the temple and our jobs will be taken away. We'll lose our positions. And this is such blindness. Like they can't see that Jesus has just raised somebody from the dead. Does this make no difference? Such a failure to, to understand what's going on. Then one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is more to your advantage to have one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. So he thinks he's being uh, clever here. Um, 
and saying, you know, let's kill Jesus and that will save the rest of us. But actually, inadvertently, he's prophesying. Because what he says is exactly true. Uh, he did not say this on his own, but because he was high priest for the year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the Jewish nation. And not for the Jewish nation only, but to gather together into one the children of God who are scattered. And so, actually, what uh, everybody does believe in Jesus. And then we have the final response, verse 53. From that day, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer went around publicly among the Judeans, but went away from there to the region near the wilderness, actually not far away, only a couple of days away, but to a town called Ephraim and stayed there with his disciples. So those are the seven conversations that we have in this passage. And I want to just end now by just summarizing where we've been and then pulling this together. So to summarize where we've been, the one Jesus loves is sick, but healing him will cost the shepherd's own life. The disciples need a strong faith to survive Jesus' death. It makes the shepherd glad to give it. Martha was horribly confused, and the shepherd gently led her to beautiful clarity and faith. Mary was overwhelmed by her emotions, and Jesus was with her in her grief. Humans are fragile in a broken world. The shepherd is moved by our pain, even though he will end it. Lazarus, the resurrection done in a way that involves the people with the goal of building them up. And then the false shepherds are self-serving and reject the voice of the shepherd. So I want to ask you, how would you respond if you were there? How would you have been if you'd been there, one of those people watching Lazarus being, being raised from the dead? It's quite surprising. You know, in the next chapter, the Pharisees actually want to kill Lazarus, you know, for being complicit in his own resurrection. It's ridiculous, isn't it? How blind they can be. And I want to challenge you. If you are not a Christian today, then you have got to respond to this. You can, this is... This is not something you can't respond to. Jesus is claiming to be the God, the one who can save the world. And your response ultimately will drift towards the disciples or towards the Pharisees. Because as things get clearer, there is less and less time just to sit on the fence. And I want to say to you that what Jesus is looking for from you is a response of Martha that says, I believe I believe you're the one, you are the saviour who's coming to the world. I trust you. That is the response that Jesus is looking for. And if we give him that response, he will be our shepherd. And we will have nothing to fear in this life. But I want to to, to, to bring these things together now. And I'm just going to end with this and the worship team could come up. I want to summarise what I want you to take away from this. And what I have been moved by as I've read this passage and I'm this is so moving to me to see Jesus engaging in this story and I pray that it will be moving to you what I want to say is he sees you right now and weeps with you in your pain I don't know what you're going through but the chances are that at least 50 percent of people here probably a lot more have some part of their life where there's pain and I want to say Jesus sees you 
He doesn't just say, oh, don't worry, it'll all be right in the end. He weeps with you in that pain. More than that, he enters into our pain and ultimately has taken it on himself. Just as he took the pain of Lazarus on himself and his death was due to having done that miracle, he takes our pain on himself. In Hebrews 4.15 it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. And so the last thing I want to say is, bring your struggles to him, like Martha and Mary did, and trust with how he chooses to respond. So I think that this is how the passage goes together. They brought a problem to him. They gave him their problem. They weren't expecting him to behave in the way that he did. But the way he did in the end showed such a love and a care for them They would never be the same afterwards. Can you imagine what it was like for Martha and Mary after this? Can you imagine for Mary, who'd seen Jesus weep with her, what that must have felt like? Never would she go through a problem again in her life without feeling Jesus weeping with her, because she'd experienced that. And Martha had had Jesus raise her up to make that confession of his divinity that was unprecedented, and she'd been brought to that place where it was her faith that launched the resurrection of Lazarus. She'd been transformed by this. The disciples, transformed by this. Jesus was about to leave them, but they saw his divinity in this incredible way. And so I want to say to you, bring your struggles to Jesus. Leave them with him and trust he is a good shepherd. He loves you so passionately, he laid down his life for you. But even in the meantime, he's with you. He cares for you so deeply. My prayer this morning is that we get a hold of this. That we ha- we get a hold of a Jesus who's not distant and unemotional, but a Jesus who's with us, who is present with us, who gets us, who knows what it's like to be human and to be fragile. Let's pray. Jesus, we're amazed at this story. Jesus, we are overwhelmed by the way you cared so much. Jesus, we're so touched by your tears. Please touch us, Jesus. Please may we know your arms around us when we are in trouble. And hear your words, I am the resurrection and the life, and know that you have secured an eternity for us where there are no tears, where you'll wipe every tear from our eyes, where there will no, never more ever again be weeping. Lord Jesus, we thank you.